You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. got to tell you, I'm truly grateful for a body of believers who's serious about studying the Word of God. I know you do it on your own as well, and I'm grateful for that. And, uh, so let's, let's open in prayer. Lord, what a wonder it is that you minister to each one of us individually, somehow, in a planet of so many people, and yet you can take individual time with each of your children. And this morning as we hear from as we study your word in Sunday school and we hear from Jim in the message this morning, I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be open and we would be ready to, to listen and to obey what you have for us today. That we might honor and glorify you and bring the name of Jesus to others. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I um, think we'll make it through chapter 3 today and we'll even start chapter 4. A couple weeks ago, I talked about a hymn and I gave you the wrong title. I don't remember what the title I gave you was. It was more than 10 seconds ago, so I've already forgotten it. But at any rate, I've got the right one this morning, and we'll look at that. Um, it was regarding the rewards that we will have to lay at the Savior's feet. The, the, the things that, the blessings that He will give us in heaven, and the opportunity we will have to, to lay them at His feet. At any rate, it's a hymn about that. It was very, very instrumental in making me think about this rewards thing many, many decades ago. And uh, Anyway, let's read chapter 3, and then when we finish with that, we're going to read chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. <clears throat> and I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh. As to babes in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to, yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am a Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? Paul. And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. But each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become foolish that he may become wise, 
For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise and their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. So in the end of this chapter, and again, remember that the chapter endings and headings and beginnings are, are I wouldn't call them arbitrary, but they're not scripture, if you will. And so often it's, it's profitable to just read right on through the bold printing that says chapter 4, and often it's not. Today we're going to be ending, there'll be a hard ending in chapter 3, if you will, and then we'll start in chapter 4. But in both of these, Paul is again helping the Corinthians properly evaluate themselves and the men that he placed over them, or responsible. I hate to use the word over, because it implies superiority in it. And the, the word he uses for the ministers of God, the preachers, is a very interesting and, in some ways, a demeaning word. And I believe it was purposeful. So that, so that we wouldn't get too great a picture of those that God has placed in responsibility for teaching. Because God, as I prayed this morning, is an individual God. You don't need me. You can go directly to the Father. You can enter the throne room of grace by yourself. And this idea that we must have Access in some of these religions we have to have access through someone else is so false and demeaning to a child of God. And Paul is going to reveal that as he goes through this. He keeps referring back to who's Apollos, who's Peter, who's, who's Cephas, who, who am I? Are we not servants, he said. Now, these are the apostles and they were just servants. They were the men that Jesus used to found the church. After them... Much ceased in the way of what we see in, 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 in Bible revelation. Well, revelation itself ceased. Many of the gifts ceased. And here we are today, and we ascribe to men who are in front of congregations teaching, we ascribe to them rock star, quote unquote. I hate to even use that term, but that, it's in our culture, that gets the picture across. We give them rock star status. They're but servants of the living God. And Paul is going to drive that home here. So we finished up last week with um, verse 18. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. The wisdom of God is so many degrees of magnitude beyond the wisdom of men that it's difficult to communicate that. I don't have the ability I'm not a walking thesaurus. Somewhere in there, is the, someone has the ability to communicate. It's not me. Just, just suffice it to say that in the same way, we are above ants, I guess. And that's not even a good example, but that is how God is above our wisdom. So now Paul, with that foundation, if you will, is going gonna, is gonna to teach them how you should, you should regard a man. Let no man deceive himself. 4, verse 19. 1 Corinthians 3.19 For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. To add emphasis to his statements, Paul quotes the Old Testament book of Job. He captures 
He captures the wise by their own shrewdness, and the advice of the cunning is quickly thwarted. Again, when often when the New Testament writers would quote the Old Testament, they would quote the gist of it. And then again, he quotes Psalm 94. Or it's, a, it's part of Psalm 94, 11. The Lord knows the thoughts of a man that they are a mere breath. <clears throat> so in verse 19, he starts this little, little cascade, if you will, to demonstrate how important it is to have a right view. And then in verse 20, he says, and again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. And that's where Psalm 94 comes in. The Lord knows the thoughts of a man that they are a mere breath. Human reasoning has value in math, science, sometimes, except for when science proves that science is not science, as Thomas often says. Math, science, grammar, and such things. But, but when it comes to knowing about the eternal and the transcendent things, who we are, why we are here, where we are going, man's reasoning is useless. And, and when men attempt to reason their way to God, they will be caught in their own reasoning, in their own breath, in their own cunning, which will be thwarted. They will be caught in their own reasoning, and by their own reasoning, they will be defeated. The very worldview that a man must have in order to come to God, to find God, as God draws them, is a worldview that they can't even take part in until God changes their heart and brings them to himself. So, the faith that is necessary, as it says in Ephesians 2, to believe in God is a gift as well. So, men try to reason their way to God, and Paul says it's a waste of time. It's a waste of time. It's breath, and it's thwarted. No reason or craftiness can accomplish it. It is done by God himself and at his discretion. The wisdom of the world and the reasonings of the wise, and the word that he uses here is a wonderful word, moronic. They're moronic. Everybody know what a moron is? And we all have met one, but we're afraid to say so because we think it's nasty. And actually, we're not to call people fools. That's not our responsibility. That's judging the heart. But God can. And he says, if you're going to reason your way to me from the reasoning of man, you're a moron. I, God, God will call you that. For that is the actual Greek word that is used to translate foolishness and vain or completely unproductive, if Paul says, as Paul says when he uses the word useless. That they are useless. They're moronic. And the sad thing is, is that when you're in a place of being a moron, you don't get that you are one. God has to change your heart. He has to change your mind. I'm grateful that he's done that for us. Because I wouldn't have changed my mind. I would have stayed being a moron. A happy, blissful, idiotic moron. All my life. But God had other things in mind. For each and every one in here. Any comments? Or, or anybody want to say something more about moronic stuff? It's pretty stupid. Okay, that was kind of a... Okay, never mind. So, verse 21, so then, so then, okay, because the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, and because the reasonings of the wise are useless, so then, let no man, let no man boast in men. That seems to follow. Verse 21, for all things, he says, belong to you, they are owned by you. Harking back to verse 4 of this chapter, which says, for when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, and He says, are you not mere men? Harking back to that verse, Paul again says, don't boast in men. Because everything belongs to you and has been given to you by the Father of lights. 
God will be certain to bring into your life everything that is needful for you. He won't miss anything. He won't forget anything. He won't skip anything. He, he will bring everything into your life that is necessary. The Corinthians and we today often believe that God does not have our best interest in view because of some of the things that happened to us. Well, we wouldn't have done it that way. <laughs> the interesting thing is we were talking about this at the men's Bible study. Part of, I think, what's going to happen in eternity, and this is just, this is, okay, this is not scripture. This is my musings. Uh, maybe sanctified, I hope. But part of what's going to be is to see the results of what is, would have happened if things had turned out this way or that way, if, or if we'd have done that or we'd have done this. I don't know if it'll be video or what, but we will be able to look at things that happen, I think. This is my thought. That's it. He does all things well. He does all things well. Boy, if it had gone that way, holy mackerel, what a mess. Thank you, Lord. And we will, there's just going to be no end to the things that we're going to be able to thank the Father for. For looking out for our very best interests. So let no man, no one boast in them. So, and actually, the happenings that we think shouldn't have been happening. Yeah. The difficult ones are the ones that were needed. The ones that were most needed to draw us closer to the Father. So, John MacArthur has a saying, never let a good catastrophe go to waste. Whenever you think, and it's hard when you're right in the middle of a catastrophe. Don't misunderstand me. I know that. I've had them myself. But afterwards, when you have time to reflect and think about it and spend time with the Father, that's the time to find out what was He telling you? What was He trying to build? What was He trying to move into your life? What was He trying to move out of your life? Yes. Yeah, to some degree, I think you're right. I think that the ultimate outcome, though, we don't see all the ripples because when I make a decision, it ripples through my cluster of friends and family and associates. And those ripples, I think, are what we're going to say, oh, that stone would have messed the whole pond up. <laughs> but we can't, and it's just a wonderful thing. But yes, we do see, uh, especially in just the time, sometimes right after something happens, and we see the result of the decision we made, whether it's good or bad, and we can say, oh, oops, or oh, thank you, Lord. Actually, we should say thank you for the oops, too. Don't let that catastrophe go to waste either. Any other comments? Verse 21, 18 through 21, 19 through 21. Verse 22. So, let me read 21 again. So let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. Whether Paul, what things belong to you? Well, Corinthians, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. And what's beautiful here, that's right out of Romans. I mean, well, it isn't right out of Romans. This was written first. But it's, it's, it's wonderful to see the continuity of Paul's thought. Later on, when he's teaching the Romans, he's using the same concepts. And that would make sense because they're right concepts. It says, all things belong to you. Whether it's Paul, whether it's me, whether it's Peter, whether it's Apollos, whether it's the world, that belongs to you. Life belongs to you. Death belongs to you. Things present belong to you. Things to come belong to you. All things already belong to you. If verse 18 cautions the Corinthians to have a right view of themselves, these two verses encourage them to have a right view of others, especially those in leadership. All three men that the Corinthians were divided over are actually a blessing to the Corinthian church. All three of them. Peter, Cephas, Apollos, and Paul. All three. They were dividing over them. Father, the Holy Spirit through Paul is saying, they're all a blessing to you. 
They all belonged to the church in the sense that in which they were teachers. They had invested themselves in the believers there at Corinth. Paul founded the church. He was the church's father, if you will. God gave all three of them to the church at Corinth, but it was the believers there that divided over them. And this is a this is a serious problem. Dividing over leadership, dividing over people in positions of responsibility. While the church is called to obey their leaders and submit to them, those leaders must be genuine, humble servants of God in their attitudes and their actions. Otherwise, they are not worth being followed. Get rid of them. Remove them. Stay away from them. If they're not genuine, humble servants of God. And so it's the, it's the responsibility of the body to, if you will, maintain oversight over the overseers. Further, Paul is warning the Corinthians not to let their personal preferences ruin the message God may have for them. While they were not to boast in an individual man or in individual men, they were to be taught, inspired, and cared for by those men. One commentator put it this way. Perhaps we cannot help but have our personal preferences when it comes to the way different men minister the word. But we must not permit our personal preferences to become divisive prejudices. In fact, the preacher I may enjoy the least may be the one I need the most. Unquote. If he's preaching according to scripture. So, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, and I'll get back to this, all things belong to you in a minute here. There's more to that. Any comments about verse 22? Verse 23. And you, so everything belongs to you. And you, he says, belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. The last thing is, Paul cautions, the, in this chapter that is, Paul cautions the Corinthians to have a right view of their belongingness and their belongings. They do not belong to one of these three men, no matter how much they love them. They belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. He bought them with his blood, and they are a love gift to him from his father. Why would they orphan themselves? Paul is saying, why would you orphan yourself? And just as surely as they belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, he belongs to the Father in a Trinitarian way that bespeaks the oneness and love that exists in that unity. People who are dividing over individual men and gathering around them are not imitating God. They are imitating the world and that foolish wisdom that the world has. This last verse of this chapter seems very appropriate in the respect that it ties things up. Um, Know who you belong to. Know what belongs to you. And don't get things mixed up. You are a child of the king, not of a teacher. And you belong to him, and he belongs to his father. And the father has said that life belongs to you in verse 21, in verse 22. This clearly refers to spiritual life. The life that Christ is giving you is so much more abundant than the life you had before. Death belongs to you. Now, that seems kind of interesting. It has been conquered by Jesus Christ. The sting is gone. And because of that, even if you die, it simply delivers you into the hand of your Savior. Just simply delivers you to the hands of your Savior. Everything present is yours, he says, you silly Corinthians. Much beauty comes in your existence after salvation. Understanding, delight in things that didn't mean anything before, and an ability to truly enjoy relationships. Things to come are yours, Corinthians. There are heavenly blessings that you have no idea about. They will be yours for eternity. And all that's tied up with a ribbon of belonging um, to Christ, who himself belongs to God. So he wants them to have a clear view of who they are responsible to. We've got, and, and, and I'll get more into this as soon as we get into chapter 4. But the elevation of men to positions 
that they never were intended to occupy permeates society. Anybody know what a public servant is? That's what we thought politicians were. I don't want to get too deeply into this, but it's the same worldview. They get elected to a position of responsibility and it goes to their head. What they got elected to was a position of servant responsibility. Service. When you're in a position of leadership, what that means is you get to serve more people at one time. That's what it means. And again, when we see the the words that Paul uses in the next chapter, I just... um, How many of you have ever seen Ben-Hur? When I searched for pictures to memorialize this particular word that's coming, and this is kind of a teaser, that's what came up, and you'll see why. So anyway, as we end chapter 3, Paul starts out castigating them for being babes and carnal. He warns them about their infatuation with people and with the world's wisdom. He encourages them to build on the foundation of Jesus Christ with the tools and the experiences that he brings into their lives. Those are the potential gold, silver, and precious stones. Their attitude and motive are of primary importance and determine how those building materials will be used when the catastrophes come into their lives and what they do with them. So the Christian, to the Christian who builds wisely, great reward awaits him. To the Christian who builds unwisely, salvation is still sure, but there will be very little for him to lay at the feet of the Savior. And to the one who tears down, destruction will come. The third type. Finally, he tells the Corinthians to know themselves, to understand others, to recognize what belongs to them and what belongs to others. Now, I talked to you about a song, and, and I had this vague remembrance. I remember hearing this song many years ago, and it really ministered to me. Um, what it's basically talking about in, in the context of our study of 1 Corinthians is that as we build with gold, silver, and precious stones, we create, we don't create, we we utilize the tools the Savior has given us to further his, his name on the planet. And when we do that, reward happens to us in heaven. Those who have done these things will not only have the statement given to them, well done, thou good and faithful servant, but there are five different rewards talked about. And we've talked about them numerous times. The purpose is like the elders who throw their crowns in Revelation at the feet of the Savior. That's what the rewards are for. And so in that light, in, uh, in 1887, this hymn was written. It's called, Must I Go and Empty-Handed. Charles Carroll Luther was a journalist and a lay evangelist before being ordained as a Baptist minister in 1866. Now, this is talking about a young man who was saved very, he was saved just before he was going to die. And his lament about what he has to do when he goes to heaven. Though Luther was not a prolific composer, he authored this hymn in 1877, when he heard Reverend A.G. Upham relate the story of a young man who was about to die. The young man had been a Christian for only one month. Though thankful to the Lord for granting him salvation during his final hour, he was nevertheless grieved that he had no opportunity to serve the Lord nor to share him with others. He explained, the young man said this, he said, I'm not afraid to die. Jesus saves me now, but I must, but must I go empty-handed? Upon hearing this account, Luther wrote the following hymn. I'm going to read the the, the, the verses, and then I'll read the chorus last. The verses go like this. Must I go and empty-handed, thus my dear Redeemer meet? Not one day of service give him, lay no trophy at his feet. Not at death I shrink nor falter, for my Savior saves me now. But to meet him empty-handed, thought of that now clouds my brow. Oh, the years in sinning wasted, could I but recall them now? 
I would give them to my Savior. To his will I gladly bow. O ye saints, this is the young man talking to us. O ye saints, arouse, be earnest. Up and work while yet tis day, ere the night of death overtake thee. Strive for souls while still you may. And then the, the chorus is, must I go and empty handed? Must I meet my Savior so? Not one soul with which to greet him. Must I empty handed go? And so that's the lament of a soul who was saved late in life. Well, he was actually a young man, but late in his opportunity. He had opportunities, I'm sure, throughout the years. Now, God knows why this happened this way. For one thing, maybe for the hymn to be written. But the idea for those who have been saved, don't go empty-handed. Be serving him. Be doing the things that he has prepared you for in Ephesians chapter 2, as it talks about. So, at any rate, that song has ministered to me. It's a, it's a reminder that we have been saved to, to great things, all of us. Any comments before we go to chapter 4? So let's read chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 21 verses. <clears throat> Again, Paul's going to be t- treating this issue of how not to be factionalist, how not to be divisive, how to be responsive to those in leadership or responsibility over you without being um, moronic. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself. Yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring both the, both, who will bring to light, who will both bring to light, the hidden, the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now, these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that in us you might learn not to exceed what is written, in order that no one of you might become arrogant in behalf of one against another. For who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You have already become rich. You may have you have become kings without us. And I would indeed that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. For this reason, I have sent you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon. And if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod 
or with love and a spirit of gentleness. Another translation, shall I come to you with a whip or a spirit of love, a spirit of love and a spirit of gentleness? Because the Corinthians were incorrectly evaluating the men over them and as such were aligning themselves improperly with these men, Paul must give the Corinthians the proper guidelines and, by extension, thank you very much, Holy Spirit, us, he must give them the guidelines by which the members of the body in Christ should evaluate their ministers. He turns to a bit of sarcasm to make the point that the Corinthians were going beyond what they had been taught and incorporating into their own teachings the false teachings of the world. I'm glad that never happens today. He sarcastically alleges that they are brilliant and wealthy as compared to Paul and Apollos and Cephas, who are spectacles, fools for Christ and dishonored. It's not Paul's desire to shame the Corinthians, but to warn them as his dear children. He says, because he, Paul, wasn't just their guardian, their teacher. He was also their spiritual father through the gospel by the work of Jesus Christ himself. And thus, as thus, and as such, he has a special relationship with the Corinthians. He sent them Timothy, a faithful worker, to remind them of Paul's teaching in life. He warns them that even though they think they may not, he may not come to discipline, if God allows, he will come. And if necessary, discipline them with a whip or gentleness, as the situation calls. So, as this is being read and pro- provided to the Corinthian church, you know it has to cause them to pause and think about what's going on. And it's so hard sometimes to get us to stop and think about what we're doing, why we're doing it. And so that's what Paul's intent is, especially in these early chapters, because he's going to deal with some really, really serious things. Well, factionalism, division is really serious. It, it causes the most grief and pain in the church today, dividing over people. Uh, I've seen it happen. Um, it's just, it's a hard thing. It's a hurtful, hard thing. And sometimes very difficult to get over. Uh, but I've also seen people forgive. And that's a remarkable thing. Especially when, when you were at fault and people forgive you. You know, it's by the work of the Father in their lives. And so Paul's going to give them more parameters about how to deal with one another and how to deal with their leadership. Let a man, he says, you want to know how to man, how you should regard those who have been put in responsibility over them, over you? Okay, here's how you do it. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So the word servant is a word that means an under rower. In that scene where they had, where uh, Ben-Hur gets put in the bottom of the uh, ship. Oh, I'll get to that in a minute then. Apparently I have that later on. In the bottom of the ship, those people who are rowing the ship at the command of that guy who pounds that uh, stump or that, that block of wood, they are the under rowers. That's what the ministers that God has put over the church are likened to. Under rowers, slaves, galley slaves. The first thing Paul must do is to set to right the Corinthians' exaggerated ideas of those in leadership over them. They still are coming off that rotten Greek philosophy or concept that the philosophers are elevated and lofty men who need to be worshipped almost and put in positions of of great honor. Uh, And he'll give us a balance, by the way. He will. 
they, he wants them to come away from his teaching with a true understanding of how to look at ministers of God, the ministers that God places in a body. They are not to be exalted, but neither are they to be despised. There's a balance, and the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to give that balance here. The word used for serving, again, is not the typical New Testament word, doulos or diakonos, the deacon or the servant, which is the word, common word for a slave. He uses the word hyperitas, which is an under rower. And the most interesting thing is that the word is descriptive of someone who gets their orders from a superior and executes those orders exactly as the superior directs. No matter whether they're rowing to a new fishing ground or getting ready to ram their ship into the side of another, which may have resulted in all of their deaths. <laughs> That's pretty colorful, and that doesn't necessarily happen very much. But So the word is very descriptive. An under-shepherd who functions as the great shepherd desires and directs. That's what Paul is calling himself Cephas and Apollos. An under-shepherd who functions exactly as the great shepherd has directed. <clears throat> Here then we have from Paul, both for the Corinthians and for us today, Direction for the under rowers, that is the shepherds of the flock, and information, Holy Spirit given information for the flock to determine if their shepherds are functioning properly. Comparing this section, and we're going to take a moment to do this, with, um, for, with Titus 1, 5 through 9, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and 1 Peter 5, 2 through 4. The church is given a comprehensive set of qualifications for those who aspire to the office of under-shepherd. Granted, these sections were written after 1 Corinthians, but it's not improper to assume, just as Paul is saying things that show up later in Romans, the Holy Spirit's teaching is a package, and Paul had that whole package. He delivered to each body what was necessary to minister to their needs. And so it's not improper to assume that as he, he delivers to Titus later on and, and 1 Peter delivers later on, those truths would have been delivered in some measure to the Corinthian church. So, because of that, the Corinthian church would have known what to expect of their leadership. They would have known not to treat them like they treated the Greek philosophers. And so, here are, the, here are some, of the, some of the qualifications. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, he's talking to Titus, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children of who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. I look at these and I go, why am I here? <laughs> but at any rate. Holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. That's one of the, one of the sections that Paul would have imparted to the Corinthian church. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. That's the, the 1 Timothy section as Dave went over this a while back about deacons, deacons and elders. It is a trustworthy statement, Paul says, if any man aspires to the office of overseers, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be, and it's like he, he repeats what he said to Titus, which the truth can always be repeated. He must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. <clears throat> he must be one who manages his own household well keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, 
How will he take care of the church of God? Is it appropriate to look at those who we elect or we put in positions of responsibility over us to look at their lives and see how they function in their lives? I mean, it, it seems intuitive. Anyway. So if he doesn't know how to take care of his own household, how will he know how to take care of the church of God? And not a new convert. So that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And then last, in 1 Peter 5, where Peter's talking to his fellow under shepherds, verses 2 through 4. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight... Excuse me, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, here's one of the crowns that I talked about. You will receive the unfading crown of glory, glory for this all important responsibility. I believe the scripture left no stone, no stone unturned. The elders have a comprehensive set of requirements and the church has, because of that set of requirements, the ability to find and appoint those whom God intends to set over them. Now, it is at least interesting, if not incredible, that with this information, and again, again, I believe Paul would have used this information, this teaching, to set up the Corinthian church and to put church elders over them, that the church devolved into such a state, clearly violating these tenets. One has to wonder what the elders of this church were doing. Now, I'm just wondering. It's just sanctified. I wonder what happened. Uh, We know Apollos, by Paul's own statements, was not participating in the division. And, And we know Peter wasn't. But little else is known. So, this is an area of sanctified speculation only, again. And no doctrine should be built upon this information. But the discipline Paul had to bring to the church at least in the beginning of this epistle, relates directly to the responsibility of the overseers. It just, it just amazes me that they had devolved to this degree to have such factionalism. <clears throat> Not that it doesn't happen today. Of course it does. But it's just still, I've just been thinking about this. The Apostle Paul founded this church. Maybe the overseers were trying to return the Corinthian church to a biblical normalcy and the Corinthian believers resisted or maybe the overseers had fallen, fact, fallen prey to factionalism as well. At any rate, um, we don't really know. Paul now begins the disciplines that he must apply to return this genuine church of God. Let us never forget that. With all their difficulties, they were a genuine church of God. He must begin to apply the disciplines to return this genuine church of God to its biblical murrain. So again... His first point is that he is a servant of Christ as opposed to a servant of the Corinthian church. Now, that is not to say that a minister is not a servant of the flock he serves, but there are different aspects involved here. He is first a servant to Christ, then a servant, an under rower that is a servant to the ministry, to the church there. He gets his marching orders or rowing orders, if you will, in this case, from God through Scripture. And in in the case of the apostles, through the Holy Spirit, directly. The flock being of the noble Berean heritage, we hope, continually checks their leadership against Scripture, but also learns from them. His second point now, and we're going to look at that, is that he, um, along with the church regarding them as servants of Christ, 
they should also regard them as stewards of the mysteries of God. There's Titus. I didn't go along. And there's uh, 1 Peter 2. Sorry about that. Get carried away. Steward. What's a steward? Oikonomos. It's a manager of a household or of household affairs. Someone who is given all the tools of the owner of the home or the owner of the estate or whatever. He is given all the tools to manage the discipline, the, uh, the finances, and the um, organization and operation of whatever it is that he's been given the responsibility over. So, it, a servant, an underrower, and a steward. And then Paul will tell us what the steward, some of the, some of the qualifications, which we've already seen in uh, 1 Timothy, 1 Peter, and in uh, Titus. While this word also has connotations of a ser- servant, it bespeaks the position of managerial relationship, a superintendent. So a balanced view of a biblical elder is one of a servant tasked with the responsibility of seeing to the safety, the teaching, and oversight of the church of God, especially the local body. He is one who is esteemed, and yet is also one of the flock. One who is no better, no more elevated, and not superior, and yet has a position of responsibility that should be valued by the body. All of those who are placed over us in whatever area of life, whether it's political, legal, or spiritual, are simply people who put their pants on one leg at a time, who have been given by God's grace and only by God's grace a position of responsibility. Every gift they have, and Paul Paul will deal with this later in this chapter, every gift they have, every talent they display has been built into them by others or given to them by God. How they use it is their responsibility as a servant to the Lord Jesus Christ himself and ultimately as their, their service to the ministry of the body of God, the body of Christ. When the Corinthian factions began elevating one man over another, they completely misapplied this concept. The Holy Spirit purposefully directed Paul to use, when describing the servants of Christ, the ones he has placed over his people, that we are galley slaves, the lowest of the low. It is so important that those put in positions of responsibility mean a proper, proper understanding of themselves. And I don't watch TV, so I have to hear this second and third hand. But apparently, a lot of the modern televangelists, I'm not going to say any names because I haven't, since I haven't verified it myself, but I hear, they really think they're something. And they, they have lifestyles and... Now, there's nothing wrong with being wealthy. But I've got a problem with some of the way the, the wealth has been amassed. It is said of, of uh, Mary Baker Eddy, who started Christian Science. Actually, she got her understanding from Phineas Parkhurst Quimby, who was a Maine faith healer and, uh, from the state of Maine. She would put out over the news waves of the day, which was simply to send a letter out. I think she called herself, she called herself Mother. Mother has need of, and then she would name something, uh, a jacket or a, a rocking chair. And... Behold, a week or two later, truckloads, well, back then, trainloads of rocking chairs or dinner jackets would show up. And uh, that is using the flock of God to meet needs that, I, that we don't even have. And that's done today. I, I see it done today. Peter said, don't take oversight under compulsion nor for sordid gain. He said not to do that. And I think that's what's been happening in most of those cases. So, 
They are servants and they answer to the Most High God. They do not answer to men in that respect, so they should not look to men for their praise and esteem, nor should they look to men for their reward. When underservants take their eyes off of the one to whom they are serving, the one whom they are serving, and look to those to whom they are responsible for or whom they are responsible for to get their sense of well-being, they can fall prey to the things of the world, whether it is money, fame, or a combination. They begin to move away from the service of God and out of love, seeking the adulation of men. Service of God out of love to seeking the adulation of the praise of men. In the second letter to the Corinthians, and to those who are in responsibility over the body, here's what he says to them. Paul explains what a proper servant of God can look forward to, and it's not prestige and reward. Now, we've had a long period of ease in this country, but who knows? That may be coming to an end. This is what Paul said stewards and servants of God had to look forward. <clears throat> second Corinthians 6, 4 through 10. But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers, and yet true, as unknown, yet well-known, as dying, yet behold, we live, as punished, but not yet put to death, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. These are the things that a true spirit, a true minister of the word of God it can be called to. And when I looked that up, the best the most information that the Internet could give showed the galley slaves in the hold of that ship in that show. Now, granted, this may not be the lot of everyone. And indeed, in this country, people who are serving the Lord faithfully may not be undergoing the afflictions mentioned in this section of Scripture. Yet we all have to keep our eyes on the prize, which is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, not the trinkets of this world. And they are trinkets. They're trinkets. Learjets are trinkets. Cars are trinkets. Fame is a trinket. If the Corinthians and by extension the church today would look at those whom God has placed over them as ministers and stewards and not as rock stars, the church would be much better. Men who are entrusted with proclaiming the mysteries of God must themselves spend time in the word being ministered to by God, by the Holy Spirit, by the word of God, so that they have something to share that's real, that has been built into their lives by God. Everything that comes from the pulpit must have as its foundation in God's word. It must have its foundation in God's word. If it proceeds from experience, if it proceeds from experience, purported therapy, anecdote, or anything other than a systematic theology portrayed through the preaching of a minister wholly given to God, it is corrupt. Notice I said proceeds from. Good preaching can include experience. It can include anecdote but they are purely secondary and only supportive if they are proclaimed in subjection to the Word of God, which means that I drop everything that I'm going to say through the sieve of the Word of God and the, the junk remains on top of the screen. Only what comes through is the gold, the silver, and the precious stones which we can build into the lives of others. So now, 
we're going to quit here, but verse 2 is going to give us the first qualification of a steward. And Paul will tell us that that is to be trustworthy. Any comments about what we've talked about so far? I guess verse 1, chapter 4. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, it's, it's an interesting balance that we must strike when we, we look at those who have given their positions of responsibility in your body. Caring for them, being grateful for them, learning from them, but never elevating them in a manner that was untoward and improper. You are the king. And to you only our knee bows. And to you only our praise goes. And Paul is going to hammer that home to the Corinthians and by extension to us as well. We thank you for those you've placed over us, but we look to you for growth, for joy, for comfort, for encouragement, and for teaching. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.